May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Several years ago when I was in my former parish, I was working in the office when the phone rang. I answered. The person said that he wanted to speak to the priest. When I told him that I was the priest, he asked me, Do you talk to people? Well, it seemed a kind of an obvious question, and I half wondered if it might be one of those prank calls, you know. But I couldn't imagine what the punchline could possibly be, so somewhat tentatively I replied, yes, that I do talk to people, at which point he said he'd like to come and talk to me right away, because just about everything in his life had gone into crisis. You can come now if you want, I said to him. But I need to be really clear that I'm not a therapist and I'm not a social worker. I'm a priest. I can listen to your story and I can maybe offer some reflection and some support. And then, just in case this guy had missed the point, I said again, but I'm not a therapist. Thank God, he said. I'm tired of being given answers to my problems. I'll be right there. Well, and he was right there. As it turned out, the poor guy's life was in upheaval on every level imaginable. He'd just been diagnosed with cancer. A very significant relationship had just failed. And he was up to his throat in serious financial debt. He had been seeing a counselor, and by no means do I, do I want to slam that profession at all. But what he needed most that afternoon was to tell his story, to speak his truth, and to express his deepest fears. For the most part, I just listened. I did provide a little bit of theological framework for him. He was at some level quite deeply fearful that God was punishing him for something he'd done with all of this going on. And in the end, I prayed for him, but mostly I just listened. After an hour, he got up to leave, and he seemed visibly lighter. His eyes were more alive, his shoulders had kind of lost their defeated hunch, and he was almost smiling. We set another time to get together, to talk, and as I watched him walk down the church stairs to the street, I realized that while he was clearly a little lighter, I was feeling a little heavier, a little burdened, a little tired. I suspect lots of you have had something like that kind of experience. A friend who's in some kind of a crisis needs to talk to you, and you wonder what you could possibly offer. You maybe even tentatively give some well-meaning advice or solutions to their struggle, but even as you kind of trot those out, you can see by the look on your friend's face that they really don't want you to answer their crisis. You set aside the problem-solving and you just listen. 
You spend the time, you hear the story, you promise to carry it in a kind of a trust. You commit to holding them in prayer. And somehow, at the end of that time spent together, your friend feels a little better. And chances are, over the hours and the days that follow, whenever you think of your friend, you feel a little heavier. Bear one another's burdens, writes Paul in his letter to the Galatians. And it would appear that we actually can kind of do that for each other. On account of his own experience of this kind of a dynamic, this kind of a thing, the English novelist and theological writer Charles Williams concluded that this is a very real part of the fabric of human relationships, human connectedness. Williams was a close friend of C.S. Lewis and a member of that Oxford circle of writers known as the Inklings. Both in his novels and in his more purely theological work, Williams set out a number of ideas that help make sense of this bearing of one another's burdens. He wrote of what he called coherence, coherence, and his defining example of that was the Trinity. The life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, one in which the three so perfectly coinhere or indwell each other that they're one and yet three. Well, it's a terrible oversimplification of William's highly poetic theology, but essentially he understood that as people created in the image of God, we are designed, hardwired maybe, to be in essential relationship one with another. We are not free-thinking, independent, isolated individuals. That's the illusion we fall into in our fragmented world, but are instead one humanity, meant not only to be in relationship with each other, but by definition we actually are interconnected. And one of the places that William saw this working itself out in very real terms was his, in his idea of substitution or substituted love. And this is where he points to this, this experience we often have of bearing one another's burdens, of sharing in one another's pain. At the heart of the Christian mystery is the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, to which Paul pointed in our reading from 2 Corinthians tonight, that though the Lord Jesus Christ was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That exchange. Jesus' death and resurrection is more than simply a sign of the promise of new or renewed human life. It actually changes things. And Williams was utterly convinced that through our own acts of love and friendship for each other, we find that we literally take over the anxieties, the burdens, the sorrows, and the stories one of another. In fact, Williams suggested we might even be able to share and bear each other's physical pain at times. When a friend entrusts us with their story, 
shares with us some agonizing dilemma or some deep hurt, insofar as we really receive it, we can actually help carry it. Now, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better but grew worse. She'd heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? At first brush, it sounds vaguely magical, doesn't it? This poor woman suffering from, for 12 years from unstoppable bleeding that not only makes life miserable, but also marks her as perpetually unclean under the law, steals through the crowd to touch just the cloak of Jesus. And what do you know? Just by that touch, she's made well. She felt in her body that she was healed, Mark says. If that's all it takes, there should be quite a market for the used clothes of Jesus Christ. I suspect, actually, there was quite a market for the used clothes of Jesus Christ in the Middle Ages. But that's not the point here. It's not actually about his clothes, and it's not about magic. It's about Jesus being present. Present in that marketplace as a source of life and light and hope. Present in the world as God incarnate, in whom the human and the divine perfectly co-inhere, to use William's term. Which finally means that Jesus was the most fully human person ever to walk this earth. What he was in his life and in his resurrection gives us a picture of what we are meant to be in life, in death, and in the fullness of time. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples can't make sense of the question. Look at this crowd. How could we possibly know who touched you, who brushed against you? But the woman knows. She knows what's happened to her and that her being made whole was all about Jesus being present to the world. And so she comes forward in fear and trembling to fess up. Daughter, Jesus says to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. There's no magic here, thank you very much. It is your faith, he says to her. To be sure, it was a faith that probably looked and felt like desperation. But between her raw openness and Jesus being so transparently present in that marketplace as who he was, an exchange happened. A burden was shared. Jesus was aware that power had gone forth from him, Mark tells us. And you need to pause and ask, ask, 
if such things made him tired. Yes, of course they did. Which is why again and again we see him slip quietly away on his own to pray. Jesus needs to be alone. He needs to sleep. And he needs to pray. He needs to be refreshed and rejuvenated. And he needs to release into his father's cares the burdens that he carried for so many. Another exchange, another substitution, another overlapping relationship. Back to that guy who wandered into my office to talk to me about his burdens. When I said to him as he left that I would remember him in my prayers, it was important that I actually do that. You know, sometimes you say, I'll I'll pray for you, and you promptly forget. Or you don't really, I mean, it's just sort of one of those things that people can easily say to each other. I actually think that if somebody shares their burden, their story, their pain with you, you need to pray it out. It was important in that case that I actually take his story, his fears, which were weighing heavily on me, and do that thing that Jesus did, which was to release them then into the hands of the Father, entrust those burdens to God in prayer. Bear one another's burdens, believing that we can really do that. I mean, we really can. And all that you are entrusted with as a friend dares to share with you their pain, release it in prayer. Don't say lightly, I'll pray for you. Actually, do it. And if you find yourself in some kind of trouble, carrying some kind of heavy weight, some kind of burden, in the midst of some sort of crisis, and it's beginning to get you down, you're afraid that it's starting to crush, find somebody who can help carry that burden. Don't be ashamed. I mean, sometimes the stuff that's going on in our lives, you know, people feel ashamed because they're weak or they made a mistake or something's gone really badly wrong. Find the person you can trust and with no shame, give them your story. For we are not made to walk alone. Amen.